This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. This is the Decibel Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Camaro. All right, we're back doing one of our very favorite things we love to do, which is an awesome coincidence because we know you guys love it too. The return of Albums Unleashed. And man, we got a killer one to talk about today. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. In case you didn't know, my name is Aaron Camaro, and I'm always joined by my awesome friend and kick-ass co-host, Mr. Chris Sinzak. What's going on, Chris? I'm just excited to uh, talk to this guest this week. I think uh, you guys are going to enjoy this one. So I can tell you this. This album came out in right in my timeline. You know, I'm just barely out of high school. And, you know, this is a time that's so important in music. It's 1995. You know, there's so much happening. And this was one man talking about Slash's Snake Pit. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. I bought it on day one. I was ready to listen to this thing. As soon as I saw the video... For Beggars and Hangers On, I was excited for it. I couldn't wait to get it. I loved it then. I love it now. But I was in my senior year. I was in my last semester of high school when this came out. And uh, I remember the hype building up for it before it came out. And I remember a lot of parties during that spring where this album was getting spun uh, that I was hanging out at. And I also remember a lot of people predicting that this album would signify the end of Guns N' Roses, and for a long time it kind of was. Yeah, it's true. We're going to find out all about it, how Eric became a member of the band, how they wrote the songs, how they recorded the songs, how they went on tour, how they were compared to Guns N' Roses, all of it. He's an awesome guest, and he's telling some kick-ass stories. But before we get to all that, you know us. We're going to do it. That's right. We're taking care of the business, the business of reviews and recommendations. We love them. If you want to give us one, you can do it on Apple Podcasts. You can do it at Podchaser. And we always love the Facebook recommendations. Do you need an example of exactly how it's done? Well, I'm about to lay it on you because I got two great ones right here. The first one's entitled Fresh Blood, April 2022. It's an Apple Podcast review. It's got all five stars just the way we like it. And it goes a little something like this. Wow, what an episode. This was one of my favorites. This is a fantastic podcast for fans of rock and metal. I'm an old school rocker, so I know whereof I speak. It's so good to hear new bands carrying the torch for music that was so important to me as a kid. If you're lucky, you might even catch a round of Beat the Geek. Or an overview of an old hit parader or circus magazine from back in the day. Straddling the line of classic and future rock, it's hard to deny Decibel Geek. Thanks, man. And that comes to us from Dean. It's a podcast review on Apple. Freaking awesome. 
Great review. Thanks so much for writing that in, Dean. Awesome. Yeah, very cool. So that's There you go. Now you know how it's done. Need another example? Oh, perfect. We've got a Podchaser review as well. The return of the reviews. I love it. This one comes to us from our awesome friend, Nate. You might know him better as Bushy. He's been on the show with us on Friday nights. We've had a good time with him. He took the time to leave us a Podchaser review. He put all five stars. We love him for it. And his review goes like this. Chris and Aaron always deliver quality content. From outstanding interviews to rock and metal news and their amazing Radio Sucks episodes. These guys always leave you wanting more. I always believe everything Bushy says. Oh, totally. Well, except for that time he was trying to tell us about the spin doctors. But other than that. Well, questionable musical taste, but he's a good guy. Yeah, we love him. Check out his show, The Plug Podcast with Metal Mike. A couple of hard rockers like us. Good dudes. They're having fun over there. So if you're loving what we're doing here, you got a little extra time, a little extra room in your cachet for podcasts to check out. That's a good one to go do it with, because if you love hard rock and metal, you're going to love those guys, because they do too. Definitely. So there you go. Those are our sweet reviews and recommendations for the week. Like I said, if you want to leave us one, simple. Give us five stars. Give us a nice review. It can be long and epic. It can be short and sweet. But if you give us all five stars, we're going to read it on the show and show our appreciation to you for taking the time to do it. Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, Facebook recommendations. Give it to us. So if you think that's a good way to help us out, well, check this out. This is another way you can do it. Every time we come out with a brand new episode, we always make the announcements on Facebook and on Twitter. So if you happen to be on either one of those and you see that post come up, hey, it's a new Decibel Geek podcast. They're doing Albums Unleashed with Eric Dover talking about Slash's Snake Pit. How cool. I want to share this with my friends or I got to retweet this. Well, when you do that, we get the list of people that do it and we love them. And that's why we make them honorary Geeks of the Week. Geeks of the Week this week are Adam Cox, Rock and Ron Runyon, Kristen Schimbeck, Pantheon Podcast, Shay Hargett, Jeffrey Mendenhall, Chris Fretwell, Sit and Spin with Joe, David Glenn, Mark and Jerry BS Sessions, Freeform Rock Podcast, Mark Alden Taylor, Mike Parnell, David Cathy, Will Honeycutt, Joseph Capone, Hakon Bergstad, Ernesto Aguiar, Lil Willie A to Z, Eladio, James McElhenney, Jay Shablewski, Doug Fox, Kevin's on Fire, Mikhail Burrell, Keith Rockford, Vet Halen, Scott Crouch, and as always, the, the Mooger Fooger. That's right. Those are our people. We've been doing it since the very, very beginning of this show, Geeks of the Week. We love it when you share with your friends what we got going on here at the Decibel Geek Podcast, because we figure if you're listening to us, you got to be cool as hell. That means you got to at least have a couple of cool friends, and they're going to see it, and maybe they got a couple of cool friends. It all comes together. We make this big old huge thing, and it shows everybody that rock and metal music is still damn important in the modern age. And so we keep pushing that out to people. Next thing you know, Judas Priest is in the Hall of Fame. We did it. We did it, everybody. (laughs) Don't get me started on that place. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So instead of doing all that, let's talk about an album I feel like should be in the Hall of Fame of your collection If you collect music and you love rock, you got to own this one, I'm telling you. So, Chris, are you ready? Because I know I sure am. Yeah, let's do it. It's Albums Unleashed 
on the Decibel Geek Podcast. Slash his snake pit. It's five o'clock somewhere with the amazing Eric Dover. So, I mean, when we started doing Albums Unleashed episodes every so often, I had like a short list of albums that I really wanted to do. And we've done Warrant's Dog Eat Dog with Michael Wagner. We've done Skid Row's Slave to the Grind with Rachel Bolin. We've done Motley Crue 94 with John Karabi. So I'm, I'm running right down the list. And today I'm checking another one off that was on that list that I always wanted to do, an album I love a lot. Came out in February of 1995 on Geffen Records, talking about it's 5 o'clock somewhere. We got the man right here that sang the vocals, wrote a bunch of the songs, and man, one of my all-time favorite singers and performers, Eric Dover, welcome to the Decibel Geek Podcast. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here, and thanks for the kind words. Um, You know, that record's been around for a number of years now, and uh, I'm very happy with the way it's held up. Yeah, it's one of those that... I don't think there's a bad song on it, and I can pop it in today just like I did back in the mid-90s and enjoy it just as much. So you're originally from Alabama, right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, A town called Jasper. Jasper. Chris, you were telling me about a movie you just saw about Jasper. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Have you seen the documentary Jasper Mall that came out a couple of years ago? Oh, yes. I know that mall very well. And uh, it's it's kind of sad, but uh, it's still really, um, yeah. What uh, Jasper is has a very storied history. So if you look into it, um, there's you know there's a lot that's happened there historically, and uh, not much going on. But that's where I'm from. Is that where you used to buy your records when you were a kid? At, at Jasper Mall, absolutely. Every day after school, I would be at the uh, the record store, and you know talking. I always had friends that worked at the store, so I would go, you know, hey, what's what's new? What can I buy? And then most of the time I would just go there after school and browse around and look at covers of albums and go, should I buy that? Because that's how you did it yeah. back in the day, too. Yep. You would look at the cover and go, what's this all about? I mean, that's how we all became big Kiss fans, you know, by looking at the album covers. Right. That's right. And, you know, uh, the cutout bin was really important. I discovered a lot of music in the cutout bin. So, What kind of stuff were you into back then? Well, I grew up on rock and roll. Um, I had an older sister. She got me into Kiss and um, Alice Cooper, uh, Nazareth. We got into ACDC and Van Halen. Then I discovered Yngwie Malmsteen and decided I couldn't play guitar anymore. <laughs> and... Uh, but about the time that high school rolled around, I was getting into other music as well, like The Police, Thomas Dolby, a lot of new wave stuff. Uh, and at the same time, I was studying classical guitar uh, and uh, listening to some jazz fusion. I was really hungry for music when I was young. Nice. That's awesome. So one thing I always wonder about, especially people you know, from, you know, that were in that era and not already in L.A., what does it take for you to go to L.A.? Do you just pick up and go? Do you got somebody there you know? I mean, it's always it's a huge step for somebody to come from a small town in some other state and head out to the Sunset Strip. Well, I was blessed to not have a lot of good sense in my youth. And uh, 
So I came to L.A. after Jellyfish disbanded. Um, as you know, I played with them for about a year, a little over a year. And uh, it just seemed to me that that was the place to be. I'd always wanted to go to either L.A. or New York, uh, but I decided on L.A., and the reason I did was because of Frank Zappa. Um, because I figured that all the best musicians in the world must be in L.A. because Frank Zappa is in L.A., so I wanted to come out here and, and get, in the, get in the mix, so to speak. You ever get to meet him, Frank Zappa? No, I haven't, but uh, I've met a number of the band members from uh, the 1988 touring band. I had the, the privilege of performing with them at the Whiskey about nice. a year ago. Uh, Mike Keneally and uh, Scott Tunis, and just, I've never seen a, a more powerful display of musicianship in my life. It was completely humbling. Wow. So Zappy, your guy? Is that your number one, your favorite? Uh, no, not exactly. Okay. I just grew up on Zappa. You know, uh, I think that was the first kind of instrumental musical, uh, you know, musoid thing. A lot of my friends were into Yes and ELP mm. and and uh, acts like that. And I really loved that music as well. But uh, Zappa really touched me early on. So uh, that and, you know, I wanted to be a good musician as, as a kid. I didn't necessarily want to be famous. I wanted to, to be as uh, the best musician I could be. So always looked up uh, to people that I could learn from. So uh, those Zappa records, I learned a lot from. Right on. So what's your plan heading to L.A.? Uh, there was no plan. Uh, Roger Manning from Jellyfish called me on the day that Kurt Cobain died. And he said, come out here, let's, uh, let's write some songs and, and see what happens. So I packed everything that I had up in uh, 1982. Five Ford Bronco and headed west and uh, had about $300 in my pocket and uh, got there and, you know, did the whole thing that everybody does when they come here. You sleep on couches and you, you know, you, uh, you might sleep at a rehearsal space or two, but you're doing what you want to do, which is music. Wow. So then, the, you know, the jellyfish thing, you know, Peter's out, and then, um, as I understand it, it was Gilby Clark's drummer that uh, got you hooked up with the Slash gig. Is that true? Right, Mark Danzeisen. Uh, I was rehearsing with Roger at the Mates rehearsal, which is pretty much the Guns N' Roses rehearsal space. And uh, Mark said, hey, Slash is looking for a singer. Why don't you audition? And I got Roger's uh, blessing to do that because we were really knee-deep in writing material for Imperial Drag at that time. Yeah. And uh, so I hooked up with Adam Day, who is Slash's guitar tech, or was, and uh, went over to Slash's house, and the first song was Beggars and Hangers On. Nice. It's a great song. Great song. So was that a, so you say Roger gave you the blessing because like Imperial Drag is gets put on hold once you get that gig, right? Uh yes, it did. It got put on hold at least for a year and uh we were inking a deal with Sony at the time. Uh so I signed the the Imperial Drag deal in uh Rotterdam, Holland of all places in a hotel room. Mm. Uh so I was kind of doing double duty. Um and, you know, we went into the, the whole Slash project knowing that 
it was going to have a beginning, middle, and end. And uh, so that's kind of how that worked out. Yeah. Now I, I understand that there was like over 40 singers that were auditioned for this thing. So like, I, I mean, obviously, you know, slash is one of the biggest rock stars in the world at the time that you hear about this audition. Um, how intimidated were you going into this thing? Cause I mean, you were a backup vocalist for jellyfish. You weren't the lead guy. So were you like, I mean, what did you have high hopes for this? Or are you just like, what the hell I'll try out. He's not going to pick me. Well, my mindset going into it was always, uh, let's see what kind of good time we can have, you know, mm. time to do some sketchy shit. Let's see how it goes. Um, right. And so I really felt very little pressure because I grew up playing and singing in rock bands. And that was something that I actually uh, had a hold on more so than jellyfish, which was a completely different animal. Um, so I kind of went into it like, you know, just let's see what kind of music we can make. What kind of fun can we have? Um, and, you know, that that was good because Slash is very mellow, you know, yeah. very helpful. And uh, we, we hit it off pretty well. Um, so completing the songs was uh, just sort of, you know, day by day taking a song in the studio. I would sit up in a room and uh, at Rumbo Recorders, which I, it's no longer there. And uh, and write lyrics, just write lyrics. No no TV, nothing. Just coffee and a sheet of paper. So we kind of fleshed out the the lyrics to the songs together that way. Nice. Do you know of anybody else that tried that? Uh, no, I don't. I, I know nothing about uh, anything that happened before that. Um, but I'm you know forty singers. That's a lot of people. Yeah. I got to imagine out of them 40, there's probably some pretty well-known people that wanted that gig. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I imagine so. I mean, even with Jellyfish, they had an open audition for guitarists, and I managed to uh, to make it into into the band. So, you know, I, I was a lot luckier when I was younger. Now that I'm older, it's uh, I have to use, you know, old age and treachery. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, it seems like you guys bang out these songs really fast, right? Yes, it has to be uh, has to be immediate, at least with the, in the in the mindset that we have when it comes to rock and roll. Like, you really have to shoot from the hip, and I I don't mean like uh, today's music is there's a lot of really great metal bands, for example, but you can tell they really have to put in the time to make their music happen. Uh, we were really influenced by the Rolling Stones and the New York Dolls and the Sex Pistols. And so we really wanted it off the cuff, you know, shooting from the hip as much as possible. So you can't take a lot of time. It has to be right there. You have to be inspired. Yeah. And I, I was reading some interviews with Slash from around the time period that this came out and it was kind of the overarching thing was, uh, you know, because I mean, Guns N' Roses had come off the Use Your Illusion albums and some spaghetti incident and stuff. And I it just seemed like the main thing, main thrust of what he wanted to do with this record is just be immediate with it and just do it basically off vibe and just have a good time. And which is probably the way they did it in the early days right. of Guns N' Roses. And I think he felt that they had kind of gotten a little too overdramatic with the, the overall production of stuff. And this album is, it's very bare bones. It's in your face. And it, it just sounds like a group of guys getting together and having fun to me. 
Well, we just, um, I mean, everyone universally loves uh, Appetite for Destruction. And, and what I think really holds up so well about it is that it's, it's so organic. And that's not even the, the word I would like to use. It just, it just sounds like a bunch of guys got in the studio and hit record. And uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's such a charm to something like that. Uh, nowadays, you have the producer show up and go, okay, we've got a click track for you. And, uh, you know, we're going to put everything in beat detective and everything's going to be perfect. Um, and which is a, a little bit of a gripe today about rock and roll for me is it's just too perfect. I, I want to yeah. hear imperfections um, because I'm t- totally imperfect. And, uh, you know, I got to go with my kind of people. And you know what? Nine times out of ten, that's where the magic happens. You know, you you can't overthink rock and roll. It's like we've talked to, you know, famous producers that we said, this part in the song is amazing. How did that happen? And they go, oh, well, that was a fuck up. But it was so cool, we left it in. And it's like, that's rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. Like, I couldn't imagine listening to a Lou Reed record and thinking that they must have went in and, you know, edited all the drums to be perfect. And, you know, the, the feel and the flow of everything is always changing and morphing. And, and you really get attached to something like that once you listen to it a few times. Yeah. And I think I remember at the time when the album was coming out, you guys were doing an interview and Slash said something like talking about beggars and hangers on the video. And he's like, yep, no dolphins in it. <laughs> and he would say shit like that and i remember reading at the time probably i think probably in a metal edge magazine that a lot of these songs were stuff that he presented to axel and axel's like no but i remember getting the album and thinking this is a perfect guns and roses album almost yeah it just goes to show you that uh when you have a band you know you can have people that are you know, both extremely talented, but they have different mindsets and they don't always meet up. Um, in the case of Snake Pit, you know, I pretty much knew from the from the very beginning that there was going to have to be another Guns N' Roses record. And that's one of the reasons I kind of approached it with uh, just trying to have as much fun and learn and, and perform for people and as, as much as I can, because I knew eventually that uh, people were going to want GNR back. So uh, I was thrown to the wolves and I enjoyed every minute of it. But, uh, you know, they do have a special relationship, those guys. So it's good to see that they're back in it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, could could you imagine back then that they would have gotten it back together again and they're going forward again? I mean, I I never that's one reunion I didn't expect no. to ever happen, and I'm kind of surprised it did. I'm glad it did, but it, it was surprising. Yeah, it was very surprising, and sometimes you just need uh, you need space. You know, you're the biggest band in the world, then all of a sudden you find out you're just not getting along with with where you want to go musically, and sometimes a break is good. So. Man, in your situation, that's got to take a ton of pressure off, knowing for sure that, you know, it's not like you're, all right, I'm joining this band, and I hope we're going to go to number one, and I hope we're going to live, you know, this is going to last forever. It's got to take a ton of pressure off you, right? Uh, Yeah, it took a lot of pressure off me, and and I'm very glad for that. Um, You know, I think think when it comes to anything in this business, uh, you really don't know. You don't know if 
if one day you're going to be, uh, you know, topping the charts and the next minute, uh, nobody's going to, you, know, you won't be able to get arrested. You know, everybody's been through this before. Um, but if you don't give up and you keep, keep trucking along, then, you know, good things can only happen. Yeah. And I got to, um, you know, cause like Axel's got his own reputation, but like slash almost seems like the polar opposite of Axel to work with. It just seems like it, he didn't really fall for the rock star trip. He didn't become a diva. He just, uh, especially the interviews you read, they were, he was at the height of his fame back then. And he just seemed like a regular guy just wanted to play guitar and, you know, have a smoke and a whiskey and just relax. He, I mean, it, it, is that really the private slash? He was pretty much what you see is what you get back then. Oh, definitely. And, and that's one of the reasons we hit it off so well, because uh, we're both massive Rolling Stones fans. Uh, you know, I still consider them the greatest rock and roll band in the world, bar none. And I have a lot of favorite rock and roll bands, but rock and roll is an attitude. And Slash had the attitude from the very get go. And, you know, he's he's always going to he's always going to have that, you know, whether He's hanging out with Ron Wood or Keith Richards. You know, they understand these things. So they know how to roll with the punches and not get flipped out. Right. Nice. Now, you know, so you guys made this for Geffen, which was Guns N' Roses home record company and, you know, massive major label. Um, and it was, I was, Eric and I, Aaron and I were talking before we went live. Um, we were talking about how, this album is, you know, this is a seriously long album. It's 14 tracks. It's almost 70 minutes long. I was just curious if Geffen, did Geffen have their hooks in, like, we want to control what this record is, or did they just kind of let you have carte blanche to do whatever you wanted? Well, that's one of the good things about it, because uh, Geffen's one of, the, one of the majors back in the day that they really, at least with Slash, they kept their hands off of us. Uh, all they mm -hmm. really wanted was a follow-up to use your illusion. So they were mm -hmm. kind of a, of the, uh, the mindset that, okay, we're going to let slash do his record. And the, you know, maybe we'll get back to business with GNR. However, I must say that they promoted it very well. Mm -hmm. I, I really, uh, I marvel at, at how much they promoted that record for us. Yeah. Cause you would think if all they cared about was a new GNR, they'd just put you out there and be like, whatever, you know, we're not going to make no money off of this. But I remember seeing it in all the magazines and everything back then. Yeah. They worked the record really well. They worked it as good as they would work a GNR record. But then again, you still got slash, you know, and at the time he's one of the biggest stars and one of the, you know, massive rock stars of the time. So, you know, if there's money to be made and it turned out to be a great album, you know, that's the other part of it too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, anybody that has a pet cougar is a rock star. That's that's the only thing I can say. Uh, yeah. And he, he did. Really? And boy, that thing. Yeah, Slash had a pet cougar named Curtis. And uh, I would go over to his house and we'd sit around. I think Leif Garrett came by one day and we were all hanging around playing guitar. And uh, Slash brings his pet cougar in. And he lays by the fireplace, and he starts purring, and it sounds like a 59 Cadillac <laughs> at idle. It's incredible. Um, I don't know what he ever did with Curtis, but he was a, a sweet big kitty. Wow. 
Pat Cougar. And you're you're set. I'm just thinking of you coming from Jasper, Alabama, and you're looking around and you're like, I'm in L.A. and I'm sitting in a house with Slash, Leif Garrett, and a cougar. What has happened to my life? Well, I thought it was a. I, I definitely thought it was an improvement. So. <laughs> yeah, you're not no. going to find that in Alabama. No, definitely not in the Jasper Mall. No. Yeah. <laughs> you find other things, possums, you know. Yeah. Um, well, can you talk about the chemistry between the band and the studio making this? Because, I mean, you, it was kind of you and a lot of GNR guys and, of course, Mike Inez on bass. Um, what was the, uh, the the work environment like when you guys were putting this thing together? Well, there wasn't a work environment. Um, it was just Slash, <laughs> Mike Clink, and myself to finish the vocals. Oh, okay. Uh, the tracks were already recorded. Um, and, That's you know, I, I got to meet the guys as we were going along and everyone is super, you know, I'm still keep in touch with uh, most everybody. Gilby, I keep in touch with the most. In fact, I just uh, jammed with him last week. Nice. Uh, oh, cool. But uh, it, it was really just a three person process to complete the vocals. And Mike Clank, uh, what was it like to work with him? Just a, you know, super fabulous, supportive person. And, uh, yeah. To have somebody behind the glass give you the right direction means everything, um, especially if you don't know where the hell you're going, which I really didn't at the time. I, I was just like, and you go, okay, that's good. Uh, can you try it like this? And I go, okay, sure. So his direction was invaluable. Sounds like he had a huge part in making that album sound the way it did, but I mean, I guess that's what Mike Klink does. He had a huge part in, in uh, everything to do with GNR, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I have friends that knew him before GNR, and uh, he, he, he's just the same. He's the same person. He just has a really good spirit about him, a really great energy. So when it comes to Slash's attitude mm-hmm. at this time, I mean, he knows this is a one-off thing, too, and that he's obligated to go do more Guns N' Roses, but at the time, is he, he's got to be feeling it when this album's coming together. I mean, how good it really actually is, right? I mean, is, he, is his feelings on this album pretty high? We, uh, we had very, very good feelings about it. We had high hopes for it. We really, I mean, they, uh, you got to understand that uh, Guns N' Roses was in a really bad state of flux about that time. So uh, there were arguments and uh, phone calls made and all this. And I was privy to some of that, but uh, I was always thinking, do not get involved. Do not get involved. And, you know, just sing, you know, uh, whatever their dynamic is, that's their dynamic. I didn't, didn't want to be involved in that. Yeah, it's probably like the the less you know, the better at the, at that point in time. I'm sure. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah. But that I mean that that was a whirlwind for sure with the GNR camp during the the, the couple of years. I mean, it was because I, I remember as a rock fan, and I know Aaron will agree. You know, this came out my senior year of high school, and I remember going, "Wow, Slash is out on his own now." And that was like the big thing is like, is GNR done? You know, are they broken up? Are they going to get back together? And it was a really kind of a confusing time. But yeah, I remember, as you said earlier, this, uh, this album got pushed really heavily. And I remember a lot of people buying it and really liking it that year. Yeah. And I'm really thankful to all the GNR fans that, uh, were accepting, uh, at least of me, because, uh, 
they were the hardest act to follow, period, at that time. You, you could not follow them at all. No, not at that time. They were the biggest band in the world. You ever have anybody give you a hard right. time when you're out on tour? Be like, oh, you're no Axl Rose or any bullshit like that? Uh, actually, I was uh, kind of lucky there. I didn't, I didn't really get a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, for Axl. I think he's an amazing singer, a great songwriter, a, uh, an amazing front man. But uh, I was still just a kid, too, so... Anything anybody would have said probably wouldn't have bothered me that much. And I think, you know, as a Guns N' Roses fan, when It's 5 O'Clock Somewhere comes out, you know, and I, I loved Appetite and Use Your Illusion, I still say you could probably, you know, pick a bunch of songs out of there and make it into one really good album. But Snake Pit, when it came out, it had way more of a vibe of an appetite for destruction than you know, what Guns N' Roses had become and use your illusion. So, you know, that made me appreciate that that much more as a Guns N' Roses fan. And I'd listen to Snake Pit and go, this is the kind of stuff I wish Guns N' Roses was, but I'm sure glad that Slash is out there doing it with somebody. And your vocal delivery and performance on that album is just out of this fucking world. So, you know, as a Guns N' Roses fan, man, I loved it. Loved it when it came out. Awesome, thanks. I mean, I remember hearing the tracks on playback when I first got involved and went, damn, this sounds good. I mean, it really, his, the guitar, the drum, the whole, uh, it all just coalesced into this really beautiful sound. It was a little different than, say, Appetite, uh, but it, it just, it was hard hitting. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons I think that the record has held up so well. It, it just, Everyone was in this certain mindset of sonics, if you will, to get this kind of certain sound. And it, and it just really, uh, you know, it was like music to my ears, so to speak. Yeah, and I mean, Slash's playing is just insane on it. It's, uh, and then, you know, it's, I hear the elements of appetite, but I, I mean, I even hear, you know, even some Southern rock influence on some of this stuff, you know, I and it's... Slash is also one of those guitar players where he came out during a very niche period of time for music, but he writes stuff and and plays guitar in kind of a timeless fashion where it ages well. Like, you listen to this now and you wouldn't say, oh, that came out in the 90s. It could have easily come out in the 70s, especially on a lot of the riffs on that on that record, in my opinion. Yeah, it's good arranging, and uh, he's a really good arranger with what, what he does. Um, I think that's... Uh, Again, you know, with any with any great band, that arrangement is is uh, the king. So he's very conscious of those things. What kind of feedback are you getting from everybody right at the time of release, as far as media and stuff like that? Uh, it was all very favorable. In fact, I think the only good review that I've ever had from Rolling Stone was the Five O'clock Somewhere record. <laughs> everything else, I, everything else I've ever been involved with, they've hated. Uh, uh, not that it matters, but uh, that's a badge of honor. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you win some, you lose some, but um, yeah, it, it was well received. And I was on a, we were on a jet, you know, smoking and drinking whiskey and going to exotic locations. So I really didn't give a shit. I was pretty happy. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're you're happy in your own shoes. Like, who cares what the critics say, right? Um, did I saw a thing on? There's a little bit of fact or fiction I want to play with you. Like, there was a I saw something online said that the band name was supposed to be SVO Snake Pit for Slash's very own Snake Pit, but the record company made him call it Slash's Snake Pit. Is that true? I that's the first time I've ever heard that. Hmm. Um, uh, it, it could be BS because it's the internet. Who knows? I, I don't know for sure. Um, I'm glad that he just chose Slash a Snake Pit. <laughs> the other thing, yeah, it has a better. Yeah, it sounds like VC. It sounds like Studio Talk or some shit. I I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, you got a VSO, you know, like aerial speed oscillation. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I saw um, an interview with Matt Sorum um, about this record and about this period, and somebody had uh, asked him about like. Uh, you know his involvement with with side projects he he was promoting neurotic outsiders at the time um but as you know he played on on snake pit but uh he said that axel criticized solo projects from the other members he hates snake pit and he laughed when he said it it was hard for me to deal with axel asked me not to go on tour with slash i didn't want to endanger guns and roses if i toured with snake pit it could could have caused serious consequences it could have divided gnr do you remember this going down yes i do um, it all kind of went down. Uh, you know, Axel was not a big fan, let's face it, um, for whatever reason. But uh, I'm glad that things worked out the way that they did. I, I think that when you're young and you have a band and you really don't want people to stray outside and do anything else, it's, uh, it's, it's not a good idea, really. You really need to let people have freedom. And that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been through this a few times with other bands, um, but there it is. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can kind of understand it because I mean, if you got you got Slash, you got Gilby. If, I mean, imagine if Duff would have been involved in that, but Duff's all doing his own solo album at about the same time. You got Gilby involved in it. I mean, you almost got the you know a new Guns and Roses almost at that point. So people are going to speculate. And I can imagine Axel's probably not going to like that. I mean, it's a it's the whole band with just a different singer. I mean, what does that say to him? Well, it's understandable. You just have more variables that you have to to rein in and control. You know, uh, and you know, if I were in Axel's position, I probably would have felt the same way. It's hard to say. Uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, but when you get older, you kind of realize that if you uh, like the 38 special song, hold on loosely, but don't let go. You know, you, yeah. if, if you do that with people, then you're going to have a better time. I think because people's mm-hmm. people tend to come around eventually, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not anything new. It happens in bands all the time where, you know, one member who might be the leader kind of squeezes a little too tightly on another member. And then that forces them out. I mean, just ask Metallica, Jason Newstead left for the same reason. You know, it, it happens a lot in bands. It seems. Yeah. I mean, let's, we have to face the fact that uh, this is a certain amount of ego-driven business that we're in here. Um, for anyone to say otherwise is lying. Yeah. Uh, whether you're an indie folk artist or a, a giant you know, rock star, it, it, there's still some ego in there. Uh, but you do have to kind of learn to live with your ego and control it. You know? And I, I say that about myself first and foremost. Well, you know, ego and a competitive nature, I think. 
Right. Yeah. Competitive is uh, another great word because you, you know, you're up against, well, 40 singers auditioning or, or whatever. Um, mm. Fortunately, I never knew that there were 40 singers auditioning. So that pressure was off of me. But wow. <laughs> you, you never know. Like, if, you know, if you don't take that gig or if, you know, somebody will take it. If, if you don't yeah. want it bad mm. enough and you don't work hard enough for it, then somebody's going to want it. And then the the tour ends up going um, out with uh, Brian Tishy on drums, who's an absolute yeah. monster, and then uh, of course uh, James Lomenzo on bass, who is an incredible player too. Um, what, I'm assuming Mike Inez probably had Allison Chain's commitments. Is that what led him to not be able to join you guys? Right. Yeah. But we lucked out because well, uh, James and Tishy are, like you said, they're super super amazing, and to hear that rhythm section yeah. cranking. You know, on a big stage was really something to behold. Yeah. So on this tour, are these the, uh, at this point the biggest shows you've ever played at on in your in your life at that point? Oh, absolutely, and um, they're uh, the biggest shows I've ever played. Period. Yeah. Uh, played at played at Castle Donington uh, in '95, wow. opening for Metallica, and that was something like 150,000 people. I couldn't even see the end of the crowd. You know, and I was like, wow. good God, you know, there ain't this many people with Jasper at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> like 10 Jaspers. <laughs> it's like, at least. <laughs> so for never doing that before, I mean, is it scary? Well, uh, once we got into the touring part, the pressure did uh, increase because I was expected to try to be a performer. And I'd never worked a big stage before in my life. So I do remember uh, Slash and the tour manager at the time going, hey, man, you gotta, why don't you, you step it up a little bit? you got a big stage here. You need to work this crowd. You need to communicate with people. Uh, and that was a huge, huge thing that I learned during that whole experience. I was like, how do you, how do you sing 250,000 people? Uh, you know, you have to give it a thousand percent. Yeah, I guess that's a that's a big lesson to learn because yeah, because if you've never done that, you wouldn't have a clue of what you know how you come off all the way in the back of that crowd. So, and I saw an interview with Bruce Dickinson years ago where he said, when you're playing arenas and stadiums and giant festival crowds, you have to think of the person all the way in the back and say, can and think, am I putting on a show for them, not just the people up front? Yeah, you're completely naked, and you better have a big set. You know, because because a crowd like that can smell insecurity. They can smell anything that might be wrong. You need to go out and spell it out for people. Nice. I like that. Was there any uh, major partying or pranks or anything going on during this tour? Like, how wild did it get on the road? Well, the only thing I can say was a rock and roll band of its time. Uh, replete with all the trappings that one might encounter. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that uh, uh, we did a lot of touring. We did the States, you know, we, we went everywhere all over the world. Um, so not a lot of time to do too much partying. Right. What was the farthest from home you ever got with them? Oh, we went all over the world. We went to uh, Singapore, Japan, Europe, uh we went to uh, Australia, you know, uh, it was a proper world tour. Yeah, I 
guess so. Yeah, I saw online it says 85 shows and you went to 19 different countries. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, this was the days when you had a record company promotion budget and they, they would fly you to do uh, radio spots. And uh, we, were, we were lucky in the sense that, you know, Slash being such a big name that we did like a couple of months of promotion just flying around by ourselves. So we, uh, we did Howard Stern and... David Letterman, you know, uh, the talk shows and, and stuff like that. So uh, you really can feel like you're in the Rolling Stones. Oh, I bet. It's pretty easy. Yeah. So I know when this album came out, I loved it so much. And then years later, it's announced that Slash is going to come out with another Slash Snake Pit album. But when it comes out, it's a different singer. And I was upset by that at the time. Why didn't you participate when Slash's Snake Pit reconvened on down the line uh the long and short of it was i was already signed with sony with imperial drag and uh roger and i had been working on the uh our music uh, all through the the snake pit days as well so i had a commitment uh to him that i had to honor and it was already legally binding since uh you know we'd signed the contracts so Parting is such sweet sorrow, but it had to be done. And then they got Rod, and I love Rod. I think Rod's an amazing singer yeah. as well. Ryan Roxy's in that lineup, yeah. Matt Logg, uh, all good friends of mine. So it's just a different manifestation, a different facet of what Slash, you know, exploring his musicality. Yeah. And on, on this record, uh, you know, obviously it's 14 tracks. Uh, I don't know. We'll go track by track. But, like, what, what are some of the standout songs to you on this record that you, you have the best memories of making? I love, uh, well, I love Beggars and Hangers On because it was the first thing that I'd ever, uh, you know, heard or contributed lyrics to. And mm -hmm. I pretty much came out pure. Like, I wrote the lyrics on the spot when I auditioned. And with a few minor changes that Slash brought in, uh, you know, we had a song going and we were really proud of it. Um, but I like songs like Good to Be Alive. Mm. Uh, I liked uh, I liked Lower only because it was me really low mm. for me to sing. I'm a high tenor. Uh, and I just thought the, the riff was very strange. Uh, Slash would bring in an idea like uh, where where the idea for the music came from. And uh, I think in that case, that song was about Savannah. So, uh, yeah. I, which, we, you know, we hit some really dark subject matter on that yeah. record. Yeah, that, yeah, I read that that one was about kind of a combination of Savannah and Kurt Cobain's suicides uh, that, that he was touching on with that. Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, it, it was still fresh in our minds of losing uh, Kurt. So uh, I think in the, the middle of it, I'm just wondering as a kid, like, gosh, how, how low do you have to go, right? Yeah. Limbo. Yeah, that song has got a super dark but still powerful vibe to it. I love that one. Guess you want to run down the list, do rapid fire. Give a little thought on each yeah, one of these songs it. on the album. There's a lot of them, man. I love that. Uh, neither can I. Any thoughts on that one? Memories of it? Uh, that's uh, well. That's another dark theme. Um, 
that's really kind of about a friend of mine's dad who uh, offed himself. So that was, that was my uh, inspiration for it. He'd uh, put himself in a car and did the old exhaust mm. pipe trick. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I was like, well, what would you say if it was you about to, to do the same thing? I think I, I just wrote it from a first-person perspective. trying to explain why I was doing this uh, or the pain that I was in, whatever, you know. I'm trying to feel what that person, I can, yeah, I can dig that. Second song on the album, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, this one, Gilby Clark had a good hand in, a song called Dime Store Rock. Right, yeah. Uh, well, that's kind of an L.A. song. That's a, a street song, you know, it's like, if you get out on the strip and you're living out in a, an apartment or a couch or whatever, like there's a lot of unsavory shit goes on here. Um, or it did. I mean, I, it still does, of course, but it's just kind of, I, I just consider that kind of a street song. And that one always stood out to me as like, that's really a good Gilby Clark song. Like when Pawn Shop Guitars came out, I remember thinking, man, that Dime Store Rock would fit on this album pretty damn good, too. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, it's, 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 uh, anything that can, that can, uh, evoke some kind of, uh, feeling of chaos was pretty important, I think, on that number, we were kind of aiming yeah. for that. Big Gilby fan, love that guy. His last album is killer. Oh yeah, I love Gilby. Alright, then the next track, we talked about this one a little bit earlier, Beggars and Hangers On. You guys played it on Howard Stern. It was the video. I mean, this was the the hit off the album. And your first chance to work with them, and man, you knocked it out of the park, and it ain't no wonder that they were impressed with what you did. Duff McKagan, it says, has a little hand in this one, too. Yes, he does. And, uh, well, that's sort of an introductory uh, lyric to, hello, my name is Eric, and I'll be replacing Axel for this portion of the show. So it's kind of my way of, uh, of saying, I hope you like me. played into uh, relationship things as well so it's kind of a, a personal song in that regard it's not really about uh, GNR I mean it's there's still a personal uh, twist to it I think um, when somebody is in love with someone and uh, they can't get uh, they can't get through to them because they're being manipulated you know and that that goes on a lot here as yeah. you know 
on the uh, the performance you did with Slash on Howard Stern, I was watching that today, and uh, you pretty much blew Howard away at the end of that with your your vocals. And I, I saw that story where Slash said that you know when you were uh, doing the record, he was worried about you because <laughs> he's like, Is, "Are you okay after doing that?" And you're like, "Yeah, let's just do another take." And he couldn't believe it. Well, I'd had a lot of experience playing in bands around the southeast for a, a number of years, and I was always the default lead singer. Um, and I couldn't really sing that well when I first started out, but, uh, repetition and, uh, many rounds of having strep throat in my teens. I think it, I've still got my tonsils. So, uh, you know, they're kind of like little (laughs) flute holes or something. I don't know, but let's, uh, let's talk about good to be alive. What do you, what's your memories on that one? Uh, again, it's kind of another Kind of another street song, you know, just a, a reflection of being in the big city, you know, getting off the bus and going, what the fuck is going on here? might talk about stories that they've had I, I don't remember any offhand like I said I was in a room by myself I had a TV but I didn't watch it all I did was uh, brew coffee and and have speedballs with Jack Daniels I'm just sit there and drink whiskey and coffee all day and just get like if you know what that feels like it feels like your brains being pulled apart but for some reason it seemed <laughs> to work at the time so I was able to uh, kind of get that one out. Wow. And that song has got a good upbeat vibe to it. You know, you say there's some dark stuff on here, but that one's like a fun song. And I like that. It's got like that, like you talk about like the Stones kind of vibe. To yeah, it. absolutely. Uh, and we wanted that sense of fun. Yeah. Stones <laughs> on steroids. Uh, track number five, What Do You Want to Be? Mm, I love that one, too. Uh, that's kind of more or less about high society. Well, I think it's funny today because you have all these influencers on the on the web or TikTok or whatever. They're kind of chasing your dream of high society or being at the right parties or uh, things of that nature. And uh, that was a natural song to write because I'm I'm not that person. Uh, Well, neither is Slash, really. That's true. But you were surrounded by a lot of people that were that person in Hollywood in those days, I'm sure. Yeah, and you know, it's, uh, you know, times have changed, but it's still the same. It's just moved into the the web, the internet world, you know. That's true. And then um, Monkey Chow, that's pretty much an all, all Gilby on that, yeah. right? Right, that's Gilby. He wrote those lyrics, so you'd have to ask him.
so underrated. You know, Guns N' Roses, everybody just looked at him as the guy that replaced Izzy. But man, you know, his solo stuff and such a good songwriter too, you know. He could have, I wish he would have had the opportunity to do more in GNR than just be like the replacement guy. Yeah, I think uh, I think GNR would have benefited greatly. Uh, track number seven, Sama City Ward. That one's actually got Izzy straddling. Uh, yes, is credited on there. That's right. He did play on that one. Um, well, it's just a song about utter insanity, about losing your shit. Really, I mean, about being young and crazy, I guess, but winding up in a mental ward, you know. Overdoing it. get to meet Izzy? Yes, I have. He's a very, very wonderful gentleman. Easy going as they come. And then up next is uh, Jizz to Pit. That's the instrumental. That's a hard driving incest. One, I don't always like instrumentals on albums. I always like to have a singer. I think it's a, sometimes I hear an instrumental song and I think, yeah, they just ran out of time, or they didn't feel like adding lyrics to this, but they could have, you know. But Jizz to Pit is one that's fun instrumental jam. I don't have a problem with it. Hey, you gotta let the musicians work out sometimes. Yeah, give you a break. Yeah. That's right. Because you still got a bunch of songs to go on here. Up next, we talked about it a little bit earlier, Lower. Man, such a groove on that song. I love that one. Yeah, just creeps feel, Scoob. Totally. Drink me. It's a nightmare. It's the Number 10, Take It Away. That's that's another one, too, that's kind of got a little edge to it. That's one of my favorites on yeah. the record. Yeah, that's uh, just a song about frustration. Uh, I think uh, maybe, if anything, we all had a little bit of that frustration. Just take away the, uh, the bullshit and let us get on with it, you know. I think that's probably the main, main uh, impetus of where that came from.
can't relate with that. Uh, another one of my favorites on here. This is a fun song. Doing fine. It's a party rocker. It is indeed a party rocker. We got a band playing. The singer's really fat. The cat is in the dryer. Who's the asshole who did that? Someone's in the back room. I think they're getting high. If they don't, I'll And it just kind of, that one, uh, at least lyrically for me, came from, you know, growing up in Jasper and always used to play with older guys, uh, you know, that were at least seven to ten years older. So we'd play parties down by the river and and uh, raise hell. And, if, you know, you being from the South, you know that people down there know how to raise hell. So... Yeah, and the best parties are always down by the river. Yeah, down by the river, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so that, that kind of there was a certain party that I played in, uh, you know, when I was young. That I just, I, I that's where I got all the inspiration from. I still remember the party like yesterday. And I didn't have sex with any strange women. I promise. I just, it was just a wild southern bunch of people getting together and raising hell, like Jessica or something, you know. <laughs> All right, that brings us up to track 11, Be the Ball. Yeah, this one's a little odd. I I read in an interview that like it's basically written from the perspective of you're you're a pinball in a game, but then I saw something where it has it was somehow inspired by Hunter S. Thompson, is that true? Uh yeah, I would say both. Um hmm. you know, we do, I would say that's the most zen song on the record. Uh yeah. There's really no other way to to uh, describe that one other than it you know uh, be the ball be the change you know you can if you put yourself in that place uh, of being the pinball uh, you can learn a lot about yourself I was just hoping it was a Caddyshack reference, but I was wrong. I think maybe a little bit, because if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think Slash brought that title. I think that he was like, yeah. hey man, I've got this idea for a title. As a, you know, I would write the bulk of everything and the, and the titles, but it, you know, uh, we worked together as well. So uh, he brought that title. That reminds me of an interview I watched with the two of you. I think it was a Japanese interview um, where they start off the interview with like, well, so this is your new solo project. And he was real fast to be like, no, this is not a solo project. This is a band. It seemed like he was adamant on saying this is not a solo thing. This is a band project, which 
was probably pretty gratifying for all of you guys that put this thing together. He was more than gracious with, um, you know, giving credit where credit's due. Um, and that's, you know, another reason that he has that understanding of, of how to roll with it, you know. How to be the ball. That's right. All right. Then we got track 13. See, I mean, I and I say it again and again. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Oh, this is one of my favorite songs in the album. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. Here we go. Track 13 is one of my favorite songs in the album. I hate everybody but you. What a love song. You got to have that sweet love ballad, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we've all felt that way. Um, and, well, I think... Uh, I think too, if you if you're in some kind of high profile band like GNR was, it's you know you get a little bit insulated from from real life too because you're on a bus or you're on a plane, you're playing in an arena, so those feelings will come up rather naturally. GNR or not, if you're just in any kind of band that that's toured around and, and played for people, you just get this fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, fuck you. I mean, it, it's kind of one of those songs. Yep. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> that's one thing I noticed about this album, you know, for the time it came out, there is no cheesy love ballads on it at all. Nope. No, no. I we appreciate that. It just wouldn't have been right. Um, you know, the formula, too, was, uh, you know, the 80s, you always had to have a love ballad. You know, you had to have Heaven by Warren. I mean, great songs, you know, great uh, for what they were. But uh, we were like, we don't want to be touched. We don't bathe. We live in our leathers. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you want to go get a drink with us, that's cool. But uh, what's love got to do with it? So I appreciate that. And then we round off the album, 14 strong-ass tracks, and we wrap it up with Back and Forth Again. second favorite song on the record um just because it's a i think it's a beautiful six eight uh it, it does approach ballad territory but it yeah. it stays more uh stonesy than it than it does pop song you know so i think there's like a blue a bluesy grit uh to the song that uh you know i love to this day what a freaking awesome album clocking in at just under 70 minutes long man you guys gave it to us good and you gave it to us a lot you got quantity and quality you can't ask for much more thank one you of my, 
Yeah. One of my favorite albums of all time, man. We appreciate you taking the time to break it all down for us. From Slash to Snake Pit, you know, you go right back to Imperial Drag. We've talked about that album on the show before, too. I highly recommend that album. That's some great stuff, too. Yeah, we love that stuff. Yeah, right on. I mean, you know, uh, Roger and I at that point were doing, um, we were, you know, we were into 70s garage rock, 60s garage rock, 70s. Uh, we weren't going to make a record like Snake Pit, kind of going a little bit older school, maybe a touch more retro. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that was that was a good time as well. Yeah, I, I have to mention we'd love to have you back on at some point if you want to do one of these for uh, the eyes of Alice Cooper oh, yeah. because uh, we both love that record and uh, especially your contributions to it. Thank you for writing uh, Novocaine. That song is just oh, right on. Yeah, uh, another you know loads of stories there as well, and and so super, uh, just super grateful to be able to work with with Alice and uh, Roxy. Do you ever talk to Slash anymore? Not that often. Uh, occasionally, you know, it'll be a hello. But uh, I'm really more, I keep in touch with him through uh, the guys in the band, Todd Kearns, Brent Fitz. And oh, yeah. I'm buddies with all those guys. I mean, uh, you know, so we kind of peripherally say hey and whatnot. Right on. That's cool. And you got some awesome stuff going on right now. The Licorice Quartet. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's coming out May 20th, I think, officially. And uh, we did uh, the third EP is now available. It's called Threesome Volume 3. And it's uh, Roger Manning Jr. and Tim Smith from Jellyfish. So uh, it's a bit of a, a pop, exploratory pop project, kind of a celebration of our friendship because we hadn't uh, played together in years, written together. And, uh, yeah, definitely check it out. We just released uh, all three EPs on Sony Japan as an import. Nice. So if you don't find the, uh, the EPs by themselves here in the States, you can, you can buy the import and get the whole record. Right on. And from what I've heard off of that, that's kind of got a little, I mean, obviously it's got a little bit of uh, Imperial Drag flavor to it because it's got you and Roger both on it. But it's got that same kind of like 70s English glam kind of, kind of vibe to it a little bit from some of the stuff i've heard you guys going to be doing any shows with that or anything uh the likelihood of that is very slim since uh roger plays with beck oh, yeah. uh he also he also uh well roger does loads of sessions for all kinds of people morrissey beck he's a full-time member in that in uh, beck's band uh tim and i do different projects as well i've got my own project with sextus which uh, I've released two records with that. So uh, we oh, cool. kind of knew going in that we weren't going to be doing any shows, proper live shows. We might do a live stream coming up in the future, mm-hmm. kind of a stripped-down version. So I'm looking forward to that if it happens. That's cool. Yeah, you definitely have to keep us updated on that. We'll let everybody know about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, definitely. And we're going to add, uh, we'll add links to all your projects in the uh, show notes for this episode, and we'll share that through our channels. Uh, do you ever make it back to Alabama anymore these days? I go as often as I can, uh, which is not very often because I'm usually quite busy, but uh, I do like to go and yeah. uh, see my father. He's, he's up there in age, um, and I hope to get back soon to see him. Uh, my brother and sister live there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's home. I left 28 years ago or something, but it's still nice to go back and 
I still keep in touch with all my school chums. So nice. Where's the best place people keep up with everything Eric Dover? Oh goodness. Uh, well, you can go to the licoricequartet.com and that's the latest thing that I'm involved with. Obviously, uh, I think there's a Sextus Bandcamp page that has some tracks on it. I don't have an official website yet uh, for Sextus, but that's going to be coming up in the future as I'm working on uh, tracks for a new record on that right now as well. Nice. So. Nice. Looking forward to that. Well, if we're going to ride on out of here and we're going to play a song on the way out by the Licorice Quartet, what do you recommend for everybody to check out? Uh, why don't you play a song called New Days? Uh, we just made a video for it. And it's very, very 60s feeling type of track. Uh, and I'm really happy with how it came out. I'm really happy with the way the whole record came out. It it took five years for us to do it because right in the middle of it, the pandemic struck. So we had to finish things from our respective uh, home studios. So, um, But I like the feeling of it. I like the lyrics and the vibe. So... Yeah, spin that one. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thanks, man, for hanging out with us and regaling us with tales of rock and roll, man. We loved it. Hey, thanks, guys. I really appreciate the time. Thanks. Hope to have you back on in the future. It was fun. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Okay, guys. Have a good one. All right, you too. Thanks, man.